And now introducing Mr. Keith Lanton. Hi, good morning. Today, uh, Monday, October 23rd, more than two-thirds of the way through month of October, which so far has certainly uh, proven to uh, be a challenging month for equity and, and fixed income markets after a uh, challenging September. So uh, this time of year has this year lived up to its reputation as being uh, more uh, challenging for the markets and not as market friendly. Of course, we've got another eight days to go for the uh, final uh, say for October of this year to be tallied. I'm going to talk this morning about what's taken place in the bond market, which is, in my opinion, uh, what's driving uh, almost all asset classes, including uh, including stocks. This morning, we are seeing uh, the 10-year Treasury is at a 4.98% after uh, going through 5% again this morning. This morning, that breakthrough, the 5% level uh, happening for the first time in more traditional trading hours. So uh, this is an important psychological level and an important level uh, in terms of the implications it has for markets, assets, repricing of assets, expectations going forward. So we're going to talk about this 10-year treasury this morning uh, definitively breaking through this 5%. Last time it did that, the 10-year yield reaching 5% was back in July of 2007. That was over 16 years ago. Just a few months ago on June 1st of this year, so uh, looking back less than five months ago, the 10-year treasury was at a 3.6%. So less than five months, the yield has increased by a whopping 140 basis points, or percentage-wise, we have seen the yield go up by 38.8%. Prior to this move, the treasury yield curve was deeply inverted. What does that mean? That means that short-term rates, like the Fed funds rate, which is at five and a quarter to five and a half percent, was a lot higher than the 10-year rate, which was sitting at 3.6%, almost 2% less. And that's what causes a curve to be what's called inverted. Normally, yield curves are positively sloping. What that means is that short-term rates are higher than long-term rates. So if you're drawing a graph and on the uh, on the axis, uh, on the x-axis, you have uh, time, and on the y-axis, you have rates. Normally, you have a upward sloping yield curve, meaning that the longer you go out, the more you get paid, because the more risk you're taking in terms of what's called term premium or time. But we were experiencing this uh, negative situation in terms of yields going out further, meaning that they were lower or the curve was inverted. Why was the curve inverted, and why is it flattening now? Well, the curve was inverted because markets, as recently as June, again, less than five months ago, were expecting the economy to slow down by now. Expectations were that at the beginning of next year, we would see a perhaps, quote unquote, shallow recession. And that would lead to uh, the biggest expectation of why rates were lower, because the expectation was that the Federal Reserve was going to start cutting interest rates sometime in the beginning of 2024. Yet in just a few months, expectations have changed, and uh, we can look back and say, hey, well, that that looks kind of obvious, but expectations have changed despite all that's taken place in the world. If someone told you four and a half months ago there's going to be a war in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas, there is going to be a a continuation of the war in uh, Russia and Ukraine with really no end in sight to that conflict. 
the tensions with China are going to continue to uh, dial up. In fact, this morning, uh, China saying that they are going to uh, pursue a uh, tax investigation into Foxconn, which is the company that helps uh, Apple uh, manufacture their iPhones in China, and the U.S. Uh, continuing uh, our policy of restricting you know, high-tech uh, chip sales to the Chinese. Also, if you knew that there was uh, going to be a, a real prospect of a government shutdown, if you knew that the House of Representatives was going to be in disarray, that they were going to be without a speaker for the first time ever in American history, and that that was going to last at least three weeks as we stand now. We knew that student loan payments, after the Supreme Court had said that the Biden administration can't forgive student loans, that those student loan payments were going to kick in on October 1st, even in June, before uh, we saw a uh, this increase in the 10-year Treasury, we had already experienced mortgage increase in interest rates from mortgage rates for 30-year mortgages being below 3%. At that time, they were up to 6.5%. Now we're uh, talking yields for mortgages up near 8%. And we had all heard of the fact that all that stimulus money that had been given out, all that excess savings that uh, individuals had built up had been worked down significantly. So it makes sense when you look back just a few months to surmise why markets expected a slowdown. Well, what happened? Why are we all of a sudden uh, not seeing the slowdown? Or perhaps, you know, we'll, we'll see what the future brings. But why did we not see the slowdown yet? What happened? Well, one argument is that the inverted yield curve enabled corporations to switch their borrowing of money from relatively short-term to relatively long-term. Logical conclusion. You're a corporate treasurer at a Fortune 500 company. You could borrow money at 5.5% for one year, assuming you could get the government rate, but you, your rate is tied to that uh, Fed funds rate. Or you could go out 10 years and pay about 2% less. So the impact to you as a corporate treasurer or a corporation here in America is that you can offset some of that rising interest rates by changing your term premium, taking advantage, in other words, of that inverted yield curve. Also, typically what happens when things slow down, when the Fed starts to raise rates, folks start getting real nervous, just like the banks did about uh, lending to uh, corporate America. But the banks got nervous, but private equity and the bond market didn't get so nervous and they kept feeling comfortable lending to corporate America, despite the fact that uh, things were getting less certain. So what happened is the risk premium or the spread between treasuries and corporate debt did not widen at nearly as much as it usually does, enabling corporate America to uh, continue to borrow at fairly reasonable rates. So you could make the argument that monetary policy is not as tight as it seemed when long-term rates provided a cheaper way out for corporate America. What else happened? Well, housing prices have stayed very robust. They have held up extremely well, despite the fact that we have seen interest rates go from sub 3%, we mentioned to 6.5% over the summer, and now we're sitting at 8%. We'll see if there's a economic impact uh, at this level. So why have housing prices held up so well? Well, one is because we've heard many times, and it's true that there is a lot less supply in the marketplace or the fact that many Americans intelligently refinanced their mortgages when rates were low and uh, locked in rates that were uh, below 3% on their mortgages. So now there is a lot less incentive to move, to sell your house that paying uh, 3% or less interest on and buy a new one and pay 8%. So therefore, the incentive to move is low. So the amount of supply is low because people aren't selling their houses. But supply is also low 
because the home builders have gotten a lot more a lot more disciplined in terms of their home construction after the 2005 through 2007 financial crisis or housing crisis that we had here in America. So what happens is when you get religion, so to speak, if you're in the home building business and you get really uh, terrified because your business is at risk, as it was in that uh, time period for the home builders, suddenly they had bought all this land, they were going to build all these houses, and then the housing market uh, collapsed and many of them were uh, fighting for their lives. So typically when you have a a near-death experience, you typically learn from that and say, I'm not putting myself in that position again. And that's what the home builders did. And they have gotten a lot more disciplined and have been a lot more cautious in terms of building new houses and have only chosen the most prime, most plump opportunities. And as a result, we have a housing shortage here because new home construction is down significantly from where it was 25, 30 years ago on a relative basis relative to the size of our population. So it it can arguably be uh, said that we have about one and a half million homes fewer that have been built than would have been built in other times because uh, we had this near-death experience previously causing a shortage of homes homes, uh, on the market. So despite the fact that demand has fallen, supply has fallen even more. So home prices have held up. Americans feel wealthier, so they are still willing to spend. Also, we've heard many times that job growth has remained robust. Wages for workers, while uh, arguably uh, not necessarily keeping pace with inflation, um, but they have been rising. We've seen union settlements with uh, UPS and the airlines and the pilots and uh, workers out in California with Kaiser, and now we've got uh, the UAW still on strike seeking higher wages. So job market, at least at the moment, remains fairly strong to very strong. And we also have uh, fiscal policy here encouraging the manufacture here in the United States of things like chips and all sorts of industrial uh, plants here in the United States as a result of uh, fiscal policy. So put it all together, all that reasoning on uh, on why, despite the fact that rates have risen, we have seen a, uh, a continuation of a, a strong economy. And this is now pressuring the bond market and pressuring the longer end now for the first time in a real meaningful way of the bond market. And you can put it all together and conclude that at least up until now, up until four or five months ago, monetary policy perhaps wasn't as tight as we all thought. But now we are seeing 10-year treasuries at or near 5%. We're seeing five-year treasuries at or near 5%. We're seeing the 30-year treasury about about a 5.1%. Mortgage rates are over 8%. Uh, car loans, in many cases, north of 10%. We also are going to experience Social Security recipients who uh, enjoyed a uh, north of 9% hike because of the inflation that took place in 2022. Well, this year, they're going to only see a 3.2% increase. Uh, we're starting to see that uh, job security is falling as folks who, uh, for the first time in many cases in their lives, are starting to feel less secure in their jobs, starting to at least hear about layoffs among some of their friends and colleagues, and are starting to get a little nervous, and are starting to uh, job hop less. And student loan payments, as I mentioned earlier, kicked in October 1st. It's going to take some time, perhaps, for for some of those folks uh, to get used to making those payments again. But now here we are, These risks uh, with these higher rates and with these events, arguably speaking to the fact that uh, the risk-reward prospect are changing, the dynamics are changing between stocks and bonds. When you can lock in 5% on a 10-year treasury security, you can get 
4 to 5% on a high-quality municipal bond, you start saying to yourself, the substitution effect, is it worth it? Is it worth keeping myself invested as much as I have been invested in equities relative to my fixed income portion of my portfolio? This is not something that a lot of people thought about when rates were 2 or 3% that they're starting to think about with rates of 5% or more on uh, different, different fixed income investments. And you can make the argument that for the first time in two decades, in 20 years, if you look at the relative valuation of equities and the relative valuation of bonds, that you've got to make a case and say to yourself uh, that fixed income is looking maybe not attractive enough for each individual person listening right now. But for some of us, fixed income is getting awfully uh, interesting. Fixed income also has a lot more cushion in the event of a future rise in interest rates uh, because of the fact that you're now getting a much higher coupon payment while you wait for your principal back. So two years ago, you bought a 10-year bond yielding 1.5%. That bond currently, with interest rates now at about 5%, would be trading at around 77 cents on the dollar. You'd have eight more years to go to maturity. You paid 100. It's at 77. You're down 23% on principal. But the consolation prize is you got 1.5% interest per year or 3%. So currently, you sell that bond, you're down 20%. Today, if you're making the calculation of should I buy a 10-year treasury, you're going to get an interest rate of 5%. If interest rates in two years from now are 7%, which uh, is something that uh, significantly exceeds uh, most economists' uh, estimates, but we know that they've been wrong. So let's say interest rates move up to 7% in two years from now. Well, that bond's going to trade around 88 cents on the dollar, but you've collected 5% now for two years, not 1.5%, so you've collected 10%. So even if you see an interest rate increase over the next two years from 5% to 7% in the uh, 10-year treasury, in two years from now, your overall loss on fixed income will have been 2% instead of 20% in the first example I gave, arguably making a point that the risk-reward in fixed income has shifted and is perhaps a lot more attractive than it was two years ago, or arguably than it was on June 1st when the 10-year Treasury was at 3.6%. So where are we now? What's taking place this morning? I mentioned 10-year Treasury uh, touching 5%. It is now at around 4.97%. The fact that we've pulled back from 5% is helping futures come off their worst levels in the morning. Before the 10-year started its uh, run to 5% this morning, we were seeing uh, futures slightly to the green, but now less red, but nevertheless red. Dow futures down about 125 points. S&P futures down about 13. NASDAQ futures down about 50. Um, and oil uh, is down uh, 20 uh, cents this morning on concerns that these higher rates will uh, potentially cause the economy to slow and there'll be less demand for oil. Stock futures closed uh, below their 200-day moving average on Friday. This morning, relatively weak mega caps are having a uh, strong influence on the uh, broader market. I mentioned the situation with Foxconn and that story there as it relates to Apple. So Apple uh, also this morning down a little over 1%. Of course, we have rising geopolitical tensions in the Middle East. Gaza Health Ministry saying the death toll there has risen to over 5,000. Israel is stepping up its airstrikes against Hamas. Meanwhile, Israel's military is contending with increased attacks from Hezbollah, which is based in Lebanon. Also, the concerns that that there was an airstrike in the West Bank front that's taken place between Israel and Lebanon. And of course, the situation in Gaza, increasing the potential for a regional conflict. 
As I mentioned earlier, House of Representatives still without a speaker. There are now nine GOP candidates who have declared their interest in the speaker position. Some of these uh, candidates are making a pledge that if they do not receive the uh, final nod, that they will uh, support whomever does receive the most vote to uh, run for speaker. And perhaps that is the solution that will uh, uh, get the House over the finish line uh, and the Republicans could agree on a speaker. Uh, House Republicans are expected to hold a candidate forum later tonight. No economic data out of note today. There has been a spate of M&A activity highlighted by Chevron's CVX, the symbol there, $53 billion all-stock acquisition of HES, symbol H-E-S. It's going to be acquired by uh, Chevron for $171 per share. It's $53 billion uh, valuation. Other stocks in the news, Pfizer, Pfizer, the recipient of of Roche buying irritable bowel treatment firm Televant for $7.1 billion. Pfizer and the company uh, called uh, Roviant both uh, had rights to the primary drug that Televant owned and will be potential uh, pay payors uh, or recipients of some of that funding there from uh, Swiss drug maker Roche. This morning, German car maker Volkswagen uh, has uh, cut its uh, outlook. Some other news this morning, uh, CNN saying that U.S. wants Israel to delay their ground counteroffensive to allow time for the release of more hostages. Washington Post talking about our deficit. Uh, U.S. government spent $659 billion on debt payments, which doubled over the past two years. The budget deficit uh, unexpectedly increased uh, this year to about $2 trillion. We talked about that on last week's call. Bloomberg reporting that car owners are falling behind on payments at the highest rate on record. Just talked about that the interest rates for these uh, payments accelerating rapidly, and that's probably one of the reasons that these payments are going into default. UAW President uh, Fain saying live in a Facebook video that the union has received new offers from two of the big three automakers, and those two are GM and Stellantis. No news on the negotiations between the UAW and Ford. And Mr. Fain saying no new strikes for now, according to the uh, Detroit Free Press. Equity indices in Asia began the week on a lower note, although volume is reduced due to holiday closures in Hong Kong and New Zealand. And major European industries are also in the red markets uh, overseas in general, both in Europe and Asia, down about three quarters of 1%. This week, what's going on? Well, Perhaps the biggest event in terms of earnings for the third quarter, in terms of the number of uh, large cap tech companies reporting, is happening this week on Tuesday. Big Tech kicks off their results from Alphabet and Microsoft after the close. Meta and Amazon follow with reports on Wednesday. Those four stocks make up 18% of the S&P 500. GM and Ford, two of the three Detroit automakers uh, where the UAW is striking, announced earnings on Tuesday and Thursday, respectively. Management will provide an update on talks with the UAW. Busy week for economic data starts with an estimate of third quarter GDP on Thursday and ends with the personal consumption expenditure price index for September on Friday. Economists see GDP or gross domestic product at a seasonally adjusted 3.3%, and core PCE. That's the personal consumption expenditures index, uh, which strips out food and energy prices rising to 3.6%. Moving on to uh, Barron's, driving home some of the uh, talk about uh, treasury rates and yields. Barron's saying with bond yields rising, homes and they say stocks look increasingly overvalued. 
for the benchmark 10-year note. The next technical line in the sand after 5% is 5.3%. That's where yields topped out in 2007. Mortgage rates have more than doubled over the past 12 to 18 months. And uh, Barron's saying that uh, that could start to have an impact on on housing prices. Uh, Wall Street Journal uh, this morning out with an article uh, that elicits the fact that uh, home prices are the most expensive relative to renting than they have been in recent American history. But good news is that we are starting to see some softening in uh, prices of homes being built um, as home buyers are starting to provide buy downs to reduce mortgage rates. So basically a concession instead of price, a concession on uh, on financing. And what we're starting to see is that the uh, home builders are starting to uh, get concerned there. Uh, confidence index declined this month to its lowest level since February. We talked about treasuries and treasuries offering a uh, much stronger uh, competition to uh, bond, to equities, to stocks, and Barron's uh, talks about that as the bar for returns from riskier valuation, riskier investments, and their relative valuations make uh, bonds increasingly look attractive. Uh, treasuries have become more competitive with equities as their yields have climbed above the earnings yield of the S&P 500, which they is the inverse of the that's the inverse of the stock's price earnings ratio. So if you take the uh, PE and you reverse it and you make it the EP earnings to price, uh, many look at that uh, and compare it to the 10-year Treasury. Ned Davis Research wrote in recent client note that the uh, three-month T-bill top the earnings to price ratio back in March. And just in September, the earnings to price ratio is exceeded by the 10-year treasury note. Also uh, of note is that uh, pension funds, which are uh, big acquirers of assets, and they typically have to uh, earn a bogey of 7 to 8% in order to satisfy their uh, funding requirements in the future. Uh, that a lot of those pension funds have in recent years been buying equities as their best and some could argue uh, their uh, only viable shot of meeting that 7 to 8% target. But now with uh, corporate bonds yielding in the mid 6% range, you may see uh, some of these pension funds uh, shifting more and more assets into into bonds in order to uh, get close to that 8% without taking on uh, the risk of equities. So, one of the topics that we've heard so much about this year and one of the driving forces uh, in the equity markets, especially the NASDAQ this year, has been all the talk about artificial intelligence or AI and how it can do so many things uh, better than uh, humans and how it's going to potentially replace humans and all of that may be true. Uh, but Barron's points out that at least when it comes to uh, picking stocks, at least so far, AI has shown itself not to be so smart, at least so far. So, so far this year, before today, the Invesco QQQ Trust is up about 39% year-to-date. Uh, the semiconductor uh, ETF SMH is up about 47% year-to-date. Uh, a lot of this uh, reflective of its top-holding uh, NVIDIA. So, the QQQ and the SMH have certainly been uh, the hot investments of 2023 so far. Um, but what has not been hot? Well, the few ETFs that use artificial intelligence for, port con- for portfolio construction. And now that these, uh, these uh, funds have longer-term track records, they've been out a while, so we've got three- and five-year track records, so we can say 
that this is not just a short-term phenomenon. Evenly newly launched or repurposed ETFs using AI to pick stocks are lagging behind broader markets. The oldest ETF that was created using AI is called the AI-Powered Equity ETF, symbol is AIEQ, and that, that ETF is up about 6.5% year-to-date and has an annualized five-year return of 4%. The largest AI ETF by assets is the $1.6 billion index-based Spider S&P Kensho New Economies Composite ETF, mouthful, KOMP, which will turn five later this year, and it's up eight basis points, 0.08% year-to-date, and down 4.3% on a three-year annualized return basis. And then there's a passively managed ETF in the AI space, so uh, one that just strictly uh, relying on uh, computers and algorithms, and that's the Merlin AI Bull Bear Fighter ETF, symbol is WIZ, and that's actually down a little over 1% for the year and down 3% on a three-year average. Some of these ETFs use IBM's Watson's language processing ability to scour millions of financial and non-financial data points for over 6,000 companies, targeting a risk-adjusted return versus the broader U.S. market. And currently, this strategy is suggesting to be overweight financials and industrials while significantly underweighting technology. We will see if this AI is smarter than AI has been at least over the last three and five years. Once again, underscoring the fact that AI uh, certainly has lots of great uses. I would argue great uses uh, for paths that have you know, linear thinking, at least at this point, where if X happens, then Y, as opposed to at least so far trying to predict the future, so to speak, based on, based on uh, data points that so far man has not been able to perfect. And therefore, the computers who are using the history of man have, have not been able to do any better. I'm going to talk a little bit more. Brad is following the events of the bond market this this morning, and he won't be on the call as he's feverishly, uh, you know, analyzing and taking a look at what's going on as the ten-year Treasury approaches five percent. So, just going to talk about a few more topics. One of which is uh, one of the sectors that AI suggests taking a look at, and that is beaten up bank stocks. And Barron said, "Beaten up bank stocks get no respect." Quarter after quarter, the nation's banks have proven their durability amid a challenging economic environment. They've passed Federal Reserve stress tests, even after a spate of upheaval rocked the banking industry in March. Earnings have been robust, beating estimates at almost all of the uh, large banks on both the top and bottom lines. But if you looked at stocks, you certainly wouldn't know it by looking at how they've performed. Analysts at uh, Capital Economics saying we think that the economic growth in the U.S. is will falter, which is generally associated with less credit, lower fee income, and more provisioning and higher credit losses. All that could spell bad news for banks, perhaps uh, part of the explanation for what's going on. But for nearly two years, a period characterized by rampant inflation and rapidly rising interest rates, typically a bad time for banks. Banks have remained incredibly robust. And in fact, you could argue a lot of bad news has gotten priced into the banks, even though a lot of bad things haven't happened to the big banks, at least uh, at, as of this juncture. So as a result, the Spider S&P ETF now trades at seven times forward earnings at 0.9 times book value, both of which are quite low by historical standards. Meanwhile, investors can snatch a 3.7% yield by investing in the index, which is lower than the 10-year treasury of 5%, but with a payout that comes with a chance of stock appreciation. Two stocks mentioned in this article, Goldman Sachs. 
which has given up its foray into consumer banking, is refocusing on its core strength. That stock is trading roughly at book value, which has historically been a good entry point. And the second one is C or Citigroup, which has more problems, but is even cheaper at just one half or 0.5 times tangible book value. Investors have been burned over and over by Citibank stock, but CEO Gene Frazier's streamlining of the bank, Barron says, is finally beginning to take hold. Barron's talked about Netflix, and Netflix, one of those technology companies which has done the, uh, the shift from growth, where this is a company exclusively focused on getting uh, new users and new eyeballs at any price, even if those users were uh, sharing passwords. And now we're seeing Netflix focused on profits. This is a trend we're starting to see within the technology space, which means we as consumers can expect to see price increases, which is what we're getting from Netflix, which uh, perhaps good for the stock, not as good as us, those of us who use Netflix or are consumers of it. So Netflix raising the price of their premium plan to $22.99 from $19.99, basic plan to $11.99 from $9.99. One of the reasons that uh, they are seeing numerous analysts upgrade after the uh, earnings, that as well as the fact that they added lots of new users uh, to their service, partially as a result of that password sharing crackdown. Now, this is a strategy that we're seeing uh, Facebook explore. We're, in, we're seeing Elon Musk at X, or formerly known as Twitter, start to think about charging for uh, for his product and platform. And we as consumers can potentially expect to see uh, more of this going forward. Arguably, some of the uh, inexpensive products that we used to purchase uh, at Amazon have uh, gotten more expensive, one, perhaps as a result of inflation, and two, perhaps uh, Amazon seeking to uh, turn a profit and no longer uh, just seek out market share. Finally, I'll finish off with a commodity story to talk about, and then we'll open it up to questions, thoughts, and comments. And that commodity is gold, which uh, has been moving up quietly, despite the fact that interest rates have been moving up. Gold in the last few months uh, has approaching its its highs. This morning, gold is down about $5 an ounce. But we have growing deficits here in the United States, government shutdowns, war in the Ukraine and Middle East. If there was ever a time to add gold to a portfolio, Barron says this would be it. The only problem, gold doesn't pay a dividend, so you get the timing wrong and you're looking at dead money. Gold mining stocks, whoever do pay dividends, and gold is a good hedge against local currency devaluation and the fear of something. And fear is on the rise. There is also persistent inflation and the risks of the Federal Reserve failing to achieve a soft landing for the U.S. economy. So how do you own gold? Well, one option is owning an ETF that holds the precious metal. State Street has the Spider Gold Share, symbol GLD, and the iShares Gold, symbol IAU. Both seek to mirror gold price changes by owning the real thing, which is kept in vaults. Another option is to buy gold mining stocks. Gold miner Newmont, symbol NEM for instance, targets a $1 per share annual dividend at a gold price of $1,400 per troy ounce. Payments vary depending on cash flow, which depends mainly on the price of gold. At $1 per share per year, Newmont stock would yield about 2.5% at current prices, and investors get an extra $0.12 cents or so a year for every $100 above that $1,400 an ounce. So with gold averaging about 1900 over the past year, uh, Newmont is paying out about $0.40 cents a quarter, $1.60 a year, 
or currently, based on that, you're getting paid about 4% to, uh, to hold Newmont stock. Now, Newmont has had a tough year. The stock's down about 14%. Uh, National Bank of Canada analyst projects a strong second half for the company, with production rising to 3.3 million ounces compared to 2.5 million in the first half of the year. A big second half is part of the reason uh, this analyst rates the shares abrupt buy. He has a price target of about $67 uh, US compared to 40 currently. Another gold-related stock mentioned in this uh, Barron's article is Franco Nevada, symbol Frank. November Victor, FNV. This is a gold streamer. Streamers purchase an amount of someone else's mine production. Uh, therefore, they are not necessarily in the mining business. They typically do this for an upfront payment at a fixed, relatively low price as the metal is delivered, and then they hope to sell it for a profit. Franco helps finance new mining projects and has historically had a nose for good ones. At about $140 a share, Franco Nevada sells uh, stock yields about 1%. Uh, the dividend has grown to $0.34 cents in the most recent quarter from $0.06 cents, uh, a quarter 10 years ago. What's more, it hasn't been cut during that span, which has seen gold prices vary from $1,000 an ounce to $2,000 an ounce. That's everything I've got. Thank you for listening to Mr. Keith Lantern. This podcast is available on most platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Pandora. For more information, please visit our website at www.heraldlantern.com. Opinions expressed herein are subject to change and not necessarily the opinion of the firm. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The information presented herein is for informational purposes only and is not intended to provide personal investment advice. It is important that you consider your tolerance for risk and investment goals when making investment decisions. Investing in securities does involve risk and the potential of losing money. The material does not constitute research, investment advice, or trade recommendations.